all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 174 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this could be only... The Gimli Glider episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out that uh, there was an actual flight that crashed, landed, back in 1983. It was an Air Canada flight. It actually ran out of fuel due to a whole bunch of freaking errors that people were making in conversions uh, for gallons versus liters and all this kind of stuff that completely defeated all of the safety regulations. And so the plane actually crash landed on a runway, believe it or not, and everybody survived, which was nice, but it ran out of fuel. And this Gimli glider was Air Canada Flight 1. 43. But Matt, wait, that can't be right. This is episode 174. It's because it turns out there was a 1995 made-for-TV movie about Air Canada Flight 143 called Falling from the Sky, Flight 174. And with that very much roundabout long way down knowledge about a flight there, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee. Doesn't science suck sometimes? (laughs) Fucking metric system. (laughs) God damn you, aerospace. Tim? Yeah. Aerospace Tim. (laughs) I'm going to name my child. figure in the SLS cast series. (laughs) We have know-it-all Tim. (laughs) We have aerospace Tim. Yeah. Which one is smarter? Is is Know It All Tim? Well, I would I would think Know It All Tim would be more would be douchier than Aerospace Tim. But by virtue of the name, I think Know It All would probably be smarter. You would have to question him being called Know It All, though. It's like who who gave you that name? Now, if you were Aerospace Tim or Aerospace Matt. You would have to be involved with aerospace in some capacity. Or it could be bestowed upon you by someone who just thinks it's a cool name. Yeah, like the like homeless Pete down by the docks. That's right. For all you know, his name's supposed to be down by the docks, Pete. But you call him homeless. <laughs> <laughs> so how was your week? Good, good. It's uh, it's going well. A little, a little bit hungry, I should say. I started a diet. Me and the significant other decided to eat like the cavemen for the next month, which should be mm. kind of interesting. The ye old paleo diet. The ye old paleo diet, which the name of it sounds more threatening than the actual diet itself, because you can actually, you know, you can eat your meats, your chickens, your beefs, your porks. But you can't, in, in your nuts and your olive oils and all that stuff, And uh, but you can't have any alcohol, you cannot have sugary stuff with artificial sweeteners or, you know, just stuff like that. No grains, no oats, just nuts and meat, which mm. can't go wrong with nuts and meat. No, I suppose you can't. Have you ever tried anything like that? Not eating any oats or grains and just eating I, all I meat I have and done nuts? the... The old uh, um, no carb thing before. 
Yeah. And uh it works. But you can you find the you find this breaking point where it's like, God damn it, I need some fucking bread. <laughs> so it's kind of the downside to that. Although I did love way back when I, I worked at uh, I was a manager of uh Cinnabons way back in the day. You were? I was. I never knew that. Well, there you go. I'm just a fountain of useless fucking information. Not that. I mean, job-wise. Yeah, I mean, hey. I, you know, it's interesting. My, my, my career is, uh, you know, long and storied, sir. But at any rate, uh, and this was back in the, in, in the craze of, you know, Atkins diet mania and everything. Um, and so I'm working at a Cinnabon. Okay, for those of you who are not aware of what a Cinnabon is, and I'm sure there's not many of you that are not aware of what a Cinnabon is, this is a place that sells big-ass fucking cinnamon rolls. And so these people would come up to me, and they would say, Um, do you have any no-carb or low-carb options on your menu? And I'm like, bitch, this is fucking bread and sugar. The uh, would you just like a jar of cinnamon? Uh, just eat the jar of cinnamon. That may be where the cinnamon challenge came from. I don't know. My second favorite customer, though, uh, or customer type during this time period. And I, I mean, they still exist to this day in all of their various forms, but they would come up and they would get the caramel pecan bon, which was a 1300 fucking calorie cinnabon. All right. It was the like the heaviest fucking thing you could get. Why would you want to punish yourself with that? Hang on, hang on, hang on. I could even imagine treating yourself once a month or it's just a crazy thing or you're going to get it for a couple of people and split it. Hey, you know what? I'm not here to judge. I'm a fucking tub of lard. That's fine. I'm not here to judge. So they would get that. Then they would get it with extra icing. Like they would pay 70 cents or whatever it was for an extra cup of icing. So that they're literal frosting. So it's just sugar and another couple hundred calories easily in there. And they would get two or three of those. And then they go, but could I get a Diet Coke? You know, at just that point, it's at that, it's at the point where you are literally consuming 1800 fucking calories of just pure shit that you simply need to say, you know what? That one other calorie really doesn't make a difference. You may as well just go ahead and get the whole fucking cola. But they want it extra large though. I'll do yes, the extra large, large diet yes, coke. A large, yes, a largest diet coke you can possibly have. Just one calorie. Of course, now that they've changed the FDA rules on calorie counts, Diet Cokes now have no calories in them when they used to have one. But, but they have all that artificial stuff in there that actually will guarantee you to develop a tumor in some form or fashion in any part you of get your body. And sue Coca-Cola, so grats. Way to go. Life goal achieved. Yeah, it's like the fools who sued uh, whatever the popcorn company it was that apparently... Somebody sued a popcorn company? Seriously? Yeah, it was because they ate popcorn on the regular, and they they would open up the popcorn and all of the butter powder, they would inhale it, and so it <gasps> coated their lungs, and they developed some horrible, you know, whatever happens whenever your lungs are coated. It's agent you, you butter. You get, like, funguses and shit in your lungs when you inhale dust and shit like that. Yeah, but this was popcorn butter. You know, the the, the the dry, powdery popcorn butter. And they sued, 
you know, Redenbacher or what, you know, whatever other popcorn company. I think there, there's like two popcorn companies out there. There has to be only two. Just Pop Secret and Orville Redenbacher, huh? There you go. Yeah, just one of those. One of those. And uh, they, they won. They got money out of it because they ate popcorn every day and didn't realize, oh, maybe I shouldn't inhale the popcorn kernels right when I open it. Yeah, it goes back to, for me, um, it all goes back to the hot coffee thing. I mean, I know we've seen the documentary, or at least I've seen the documentary. I can't remember if we covered it on the show or not. I, I want to say that we did, but um, it just it's just the dawn of ridiculous litig- litigiousness in our society. I just don't understand how you can inhale that stuff, literally inhale it, because you are not using it properly or not treating it properly, and then you get money for it. Just, okay. All right. You know what? Fine. Anyway, well. So you have some weird stuff to cover? Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of news of the weird here for us. From musictimes.com. Is that time, T-I-M-E, or T-H-Y-M-E? T-I-M-E-S, musictimes.com. No. Well, you never know. (laughs) By way of Sean Christ. (sighs) Ah. James Brown still hasn't been buried, according to his former chauffeur. <laughs> you heard that right. That, that, that is exactly how it sounded, including my mispronunciation of the word chauffeur. Like I just did again. Chauffeur. Anyway, instead of a traditional burial, James Brown was mummified following his death in 2006 and is still above ground, according to the Godfather of Souls' former chauffeur. Quote, he's been dead since 2006, but he still hasn't been buried. He's been at his daughter's house, end quote, William Murrell told The Guardian recently. Quote, they mummonized, sick, his body, so he would never rot at $140,000 cost. Why? When you got almost 20 kids and six wives, it's hard to get you in the ground, end quote. (laughs) Brown was actually only married three times and had nine children. In 2010, NME notes one of his reported love children, LaRonda Petit, said that Brown's body had been stolen from a crypt so that an autopsy could not be done. A funeral director and one of the singer's other offspring, Deanna Brown Thomas, denied Petit's claims. <clears throat> Mural currently has a book of sayings and quotes available titled, 365 things that make you go, hmm, wisdom and wit by William. (laughs) I'm pretty sure all this is just because he's trying to sell this fucking book. Although, with a man who used the words, who who uses the word mummonized, I might have to go check this book out. (laughs) How old is the person? Well, I mean, I imagine he's got to be in his 60s at least. But, um, yeah, I just thought that was pretty funny. Uh, that was the final single of James Brown's Mummonized. <laughs> well, you know, James Brown, his face looks exactly the same. I mean, the rest of his body is probably all peeled off by now, but it's all skin off to the side, James Brown bones, and then James Brown's face and head. <laughs> the hair's still there in it, whatever fake hair he might have gotten put somewhere else. It is entirely possible. It is entirely possible, to be sure. Uh, But anyways, I thought that was some fun news of the weird. 
In case you were ever wondering whatever happened to James Brown, well, apparently he's mummified in a coffin at one of his kids' houses. So there there you go. It's their dining room table. (laughs) That's one hell of a mummanized coffin you got there. All right, so moving quickly into the mail, because we actually have some mail, where you too can send us a show send us a show you well sure you can send us a show why not something new but you could send us an email as well to the show at slsgas.com we actually have caper Gurumel sending us an email which says in the subject line movie recommendations for yous she goes in to say hey guys okay so this is a bit of a delayed response but here's two movie recommendations for you one New Waterford Girl from 1999, and two, Will Be Wonderful. Not as in will be, but will be, W-I-L-B-Y. Will Be Wonderful from 2004. These two films have the common theme of small town, particularly small towns in Nova Scotia, since that is where I'm from. Both tell quirky stories with some notable Canadian actors in each, but my fave is the first as I watched it shortly after leaving my own small town, and so it really resonated with me. There's probably a million and one things I could say I loved about that movie, but they probably make no sense if you haven't seen it yet. Hope you enjoy the accents. I was going to find the trailers for each to attach here, but I figure you guys have internet too and will probably want to research the films before watching anyways. I hope you don't have too much trouble locating these films to watch. Here's hoping you don't hate these recommendations. Caper Girl Mel. Well, I for one am completely incensed and refuse to do any research until I get a until I get a trailer sent to me. They make movies in Canada? They have movie trailers in Canada? Internet in Canada? <laughs> well, you know, um, I, I have truly never heard of these two films, which I think was probably the point. Uh, Tim, any offhand chance you've heard of either of these movies? No. Uh, what was the first one? New Waterford Girl. You know, the name sounds familiar, but off the top of my That's head... Code I... for he doesn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> Canada? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's awesome. If it ain't Rush, I know nothing about Canada. Well, I mean, I'm, got, I know like, a lot about Rick Canada. Moranis and John Candy. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, of course. Uh, SC, the, the whole, Rita Perlman. Yeah, right? the whole SCTV. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Strange Brew. William Shatner. Got Trailer Park Boys. Johnny White Trash. Revel Soak Jim. Yeah. We've got some. We, we we know a little bit about Canada. Canada, Canada. It's America's hat. <laughs> I know that, right? It's like a cool hat, though. You know, like I heard somebody asking. For, I I've heard somebody from Canada getting upset with somebody because that other person made the joke. Oh, you know, uh, Canada's America's hat. They're like, what does that even mean? It's like, well, because you're on top of America. You know, you're you're the you're the nice hat. Nice hat. What does that mean? What kind of hat are we? And so the guy who made See, this the, sounds very anti-Canadian. I mean, uh, with every Canadian stereotype, you'd be like. You know, oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you feel. No, no, it's a good thing. Oh, I'm sorry that I was sorry. Sorry, eh? Yeah. Right? And so the guy who made that comment about can- the hat thing was very like he had to dig himself out of the out of the hole to make sure that the Canadian that he said this to understood that the hat that he was referring to that Canada is to America is like 
a nice down home small town high school team's baseball cap where it means good. It's hearty. It's healthy. <laughs> and by God, it means good. It's friendly. This hat. This hat's good. I like it's this. It's good. Hat. It's a good hat. This is my favorite hat. Hey. Uh, actually, I saw a pretty good illustration a, a few months back where. That it was like, oh, so you think Canada is America's hat, eh? And then someone had drawn, um, had had basically illustrated the area around the Great Lakes, so that it looks like Canada is raping America. <laughs> I thought it was really awesome. I mean, it was awkward <laughs> and weird, but I was like, now that's creative, and definitely very not hat like. So maybe the dude who was pissed off about the hat, maybe he was just trying to um, proselytize for, you know, Canada, the raper of the United States. I don't know. Better yet, it's like, oh, if you don't like America, America, the gimp of Canada. (laughs) America, Canada's bitch. (laughs) And Mexico's our ball gag. That's how how it works. Oh, that's awesome. Anyway, well, now that we've definitely gone off the ritual. Okay, so we will look into the movies. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 we will. We will. (laughs) To get back to the whole reason why we're here. (laughs) And uh, no Twitter followers to speak of this week, uh, but you two, of course, can always follow us on Twitter at the SLS cast. So without further ado, um, maybe we could do some real, real news. If. We both can speak. Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea. All right. Well, let's give it a shot. Here we go, folks. It's the news. All right. And I'm going to start with this. I wasn't going to, but... I was told that it was important that I bring this up. So we're going to. According, uh, this is coming to us from allflix.net uh, by way of Stephen Lovely. Netflix's U.S. catalog has shrunk by more than 2,500 titles in less than two and a half years. It's not your imagination. Netflix's catalog is getting smaller as competition in the OTT streaming space has increased. Netflix's once massive selection has decreased. In fact, it has shrunk by a third in less than two and a half years. The statistics are simple and remarkable. I'm not going to get into all the statistics. Basically, it says that the catalog has shrunk 31.7% in less than two and a half years. They have a wonderful little bar graph that illustrates that. And ostensibly, it is because, again, there's just so many people now. We've got Hulu, who is trying to make a go of it. I don't know why, but they are. Uh, Then you have, of course, Amazon, who was also a big, huge, massive company. That has the backing and the and and the wherewithal to actually get in and do that, um, but the other side of that is, as I have stated before, Netflix definitely is trying to angle itself into becoming its own studio and kind of network basically, and just like Amazon is also starting to bank on its original series and films because those will be there in perpetuity um, so yeah. 
Um, but at the end of the day, the last paragraph here is, whatever the reason, the daily reality for Netflix users is that they have fewer titles to choose from than they did in years past. Whether or not quality has declined proportionately is a matter of opinion, but the quantitative decline is a matter of fact. Um, also, just so you know, the catalog does include the TV series as well. But um, Tim, thoughts, questions, comments, concerns? Personally, I don't care. I mean, I've noticed that the only time that it really bothers me is um, when they have the sequel to a movie, but not the original. That really pisses me off. <laughs> they have Fright Night 2. Where the hell is Fright Night? Exactly. How the fuck do you expect <laughs> me to watch Fright Night 2? We're like, Grease 2? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was the first Fright Night. <laughs> I don't Maybe. Know. Or they have Omen 3 through 4, but no Omen 1. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting, but I think people forget that Netflix still has good shit on it. It's like, I think a lot of people get upset about this type of stuff without realizing, like, just because they don't have something that you want to watch at that moment, per se, they still have a rather large catalog of movies that you've probably have never seen, but probably should see, or maybe would would, uh, would like to see that you never really knew about, even. It doesn't bother me too much that it shrank, but... See, and that's the same thing. I mean, it's like, okay, so it says that they they currently have, and this is as of March 23rd, so a little over a week ago, um, it's that they have 4,335 movies and 1,197 TV shows. So, I, you know... Binge thinking... watch them all. I already yeah. binge watched them all. <laughs> I think you've still got plenty of... Is it the grand total of 8,000 titles that they had a couple of years ago? No. But were you sitting around watching all 8,000 of those titles? Do you think you're going to have a better shot of watching the current 5,500 titles they have? I mean, you know, so... In Canada, they have a lot of movies, newer movies especially. That's... It's Canada! Again, we're their bitch! So of course they're going to have all the cool <laughs> movies. There you go. All right, what do you got for us, sir? All right, before I get to the deaths, Matt, did you see the trailer for your most anticipated film of 2016, Swiss Army Man with yeah, Paul Dano? And I watched the trailer. I watched the trailer before I saw your email today. Did, did it live up to your expectations? No, it actually... it Okay. <clears throat> actually, it made it worse. Because... Because really? he only article, farted once? Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, well, okay, because we know from the reactions at Sundance just exactly how polarizing the movie itself really is based on the subject matter and the content. But they have cut this trailer to make it look like it is something way more than it is. And even looking at mixed reactions online or I'm sorry, reactions online, you still see people who are like, oh, I was at Sundance. This movie was amazing. Oh, I was at Sundance. This movie was not as good. Or, and other people are like, this movie looks retarded. Some people are like, oh, this movie looks great. And one person in there who's like, yeah, I'm not going to watch this movie because I'd be willing to bet you that it's this whole life-affirming thing that teaches you all these wonderful, amazing things about life only to find out that the stupid rope didn't break and he's actually dead anyway. So... <laughs> Like, you know, that's probably what's going to happen. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I have 
it does not change my desire to see this movie at all. I still maintain that one of them lost a bet. Two actors passed away recently. <laughs> <laughs> both of these articles or both of these uh, these passings I'm reading from the HollywoodReporter.com. Patty Duke, you know her from the Miracle Worker, among many other films, as well as Eric Bowersfeld. He played Admiral Akbar. He was the voice actor of Admiral Akbar in the Star Wars movies. He passed away at the age of 93. I'm going to read you a little bit about both of these performers. Eric Bowersfeld, who memorably voiced the Rebellion's Admiral Akbar in Return of the Jedi and Star Wars The Force Awakens, has passed away. He was 93. The voice actor and radio drama producer passed away on Sunday morning at his home in Berkeley, California. His manager, Derek Mackay, confirmed to The Hollywood Reporter. In the 1983 space opera, Bowersfeld voiced Akbar, delivering the iconic line, Matt, it's a trap! When the fate of the Alliance looks grim during the Death Star Fleet attack. He also voiced Jabba the Hutt's staffer, Bib Fortuna, in the same film. He returned to voice Akbar in last year's J.J. Abrams-directed blockbuster Star Wars The Force Awakens. Bowersfeld's other roles include voice work in last year's Guillermo del Toro film Crimson Peak and Steven Spielberg's 2001 film AI Artificial Intelligence. He says, quote, The voice work I did in movies was accidental. I was working with Randy Thorne on radio dramas at his technical quarters at Lucasfilm. One day, Ben Burt, sound designer for Star Wars, came by and asked if I would audition for a voice in the movie. End all quotes there. So again, that was the voice of General Akbar, Eric Bowersfield, who passed away at 93. And the next passing... Patty Duke, Oscar winner and sitcom star, she passed away at the age of 69. Patty Duke received an Academy Award at 16 for playing Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker and starred as two cousins on The Patty Duke Show. Quote, this morning, our beloved wife, mother, matriarch, and the exquisite artist, humanitarian, and champion of mental health, Anna Patty Duke, closed her eyes quieted her pain and ascended to a beautiful place, end quote, read a family statement. Quote, we celebrate the infinite love and compassion she shared through her work and throughout her life, end quote. Her husband, Michael Pierce, told the New York Times that she had died at a hospital near her home in Idaho from complications of ruptured intestine that she had suffered Thursday. Duke received that Oscar at the age of 16 when she was the youngest ever to win in a competitive category. She also collected three Emmy Awards among 10 nominations during her career. Also at 16, Duke became the youngest at the time to have a TV series bearing her name. The Patty Duke Show ran for three seasons on AMC, and she was nominated for an Emmy in 1964. Uh, and the article goes on from there. So yes, we lost two prolific performers, both in their own right, Patty Duke at 69 and Eric Bowersfeld at 93. Well, that is definitely very sad. I actually remember watching Patty Duke show on Nick at Night when I was like 12 years old and I could stay up late in the summer just because it was the summertime. <clears throat> so that's actually very sad for me. And, of course, now we'll have to be a little sad every time 
somebody hears the phrase, it's a trap. But, you know, we'll always have that. Um, moving along, I've got a pair of news stories about movies that are getting made. First up from therap.com, by way of Beach, Beatrice Verhoeven. Starman to get Sean Levy-directed remake at Columbia. Night at the Museum director will also produce modern take on the 1984 sci-fi romance. Yes, that's right. Night at the Museum director Sean Levy will direct and produce a remake of Starman for Columbia Pictures, The Rap Has Learned. The original 1984 sci-fi romance starred Jeff Bridges and Karen Atlin. The modern take, based on the John Carpenter classic, will be written by Arash Amel, who wrote the screenplay for the Nicole Kidman drama, Grace of Monaco. Michael Douglas, who was a producer of the original, is also on board to produce. Dan Cohen and Robert Mitas are executive producing, while Matt Milliam and Adam North are overseeing the project for Columbia. Uh, if you do not recall, Starman told the story of an alien crash landing on Earth, taking the form of a woman's dead husband. While a romance blossoms, the government is trying to catch him dead or alive. The, the original actually earned a Best Actor nomination for Bridges. Uh, the other side of that news that we have here from ScreenDaily.com. By way of Melanie Goodfellow, Terry Gilliam's Don Quixote gears up for September shoot. Uh, shoot is due to take place in Spain and Portugal on long gestating project, now joined by producer Paulo Branco. Um, yeah, and basically, it's according to a simple release headline, Paulo Branco to produce Terry Gilliam's mythical project. Uh, principal photography will start in September 2016, with shoot taking place in Spain and Portugal. Um, yeah, there's still no detail on who would play Coyote or Toby uh, Grissoni. And also, conversely, in the... Or I'm sorry, additionally, in the Starman remake, no one has been set to cast or star in that either. Uh, Tim, any information that you would like to add to the Terry Gilliam news or any reactions of any form or fashion to either the Starman remake or Don Quixote getting a shoot date? Uh, well, for Starman, I really, I don't know about that. Uh, for one thing, if it's a Sean Levy movie, I'm not going to hold my breath. In terms of it getting made or in terms in, of In terms of good? it being good. The man behind Real Steel and Night at the Museum 1 through 3. True. My, my, my thing comes from, um, my, my concerns come from, uh, Arashamel because the Grace of Monaco flick was, like, just way the hell all over the place. So, yeah, I never saw that one, but I heard that it was completely historically inaccurate. Yeah, it's so. about yeah, about Grace Kelly's life and all that stuff. And that and I hear the movie it had horrible pacing issues. So, and as for Terry Gilliam though, god damn it, I hope he makes his movie because he's been trying to make this movie since the fucking I think he wanted to make it in the 80s, and then he couldn't get the money, and then he tried making it in the 90s, like in 96, 97, and in the, you know, in the beginning of shooting, it fell apart, and then he was wanting to make it a couple, you know, like five, six, seven years ago with Ewan McGregor as Toby and Robert Duvall as Don Quixote, and then that fell apart. I hope, I hope, I hope it works now, because it would just make me happy to see him happy <laughs> in... <laughs> with him doing this but cool i'm gonna knock out two pieces of my news real quick one i got from io9.com and it talks about how 
long takes in movies, how they stack up compared to movies with cuts in them. Um, this particular article is the, is entitled "The Fabled Long Takes in a Film Are Cool, But Do They Have Their Limitations?" Written by Andrew Liptak. And it says this, this is a super short article, because it pertains to a video that somebody uh, cut together and released. But it says this, There is a certain pornographic quality to long takes, directors setting up long periods of action while the cameras are rolling. They're fantastic to watch, but Jack Nugent of Now You See It argues in a new video essay that their use really constrains the stories directors are trying to tell. He makes a really compelling case in the video. These scenes are really great at showcasing the technical and staging of films, but when it really comes down to it, it's pretty similar to a stage play. He's talking about long takes, pretty similar to a stage play. The result is something that robs the film of one of cinema's biggest advantages and cut, which allows directors to highlight what their actors are doing. This isn't to say that long takes are bad, it's just worth noting that they have their drawbacks and need to be used carefully. And I highly recommend you going to io9 and checking out this little article that has a link to the video, The Fabled Long Takes and Film Are Cool, But They Have Their Limitations, or just go to uh, Now You See It. Uh, and watch this video by Jack Nugent, because it's great. It, it also features commentary by Alfred Hitchcock, where he's talking about one of his films called Rope, which is one of the earliest films executing the continuous take. And with that movie Rope, he uses these cool camera techniques, like one would have seen in Birdman, where the camera kind of moves behind or moves past somebody's back. And, you know, if you know what the hell's going on, you can notice the camera kind of like move in or push into the person's back so they can use it as a cut. And so whenever the camera finally, or when the shot comes around the person's back, it's a totally different shot. It's a brand new cut and all that stuff. What's interesting is Hitchcock talks about that movie compared to like Vertigo or uh, North by Northwest, where he uses cuts to establish tension and mood and timing. And with a continuous shot, you have to see somebody's actions and reactions in the same shot. And depending on that shot and what that shot and those reactions and actions are trying to convey, it can easily, if not done right, take away from the overall effect of the story. Which I think is what made Birdman pretty cool, because Birdman was done in a very artistic and interesting way to where it was visually entertaining and stunning, but it still encompassed and had very effective drama in it. Same goes with Gravity to the most part, though I think Gravity substituted style for substance for most of its duration. Uh, but then another movie that it kind of shows a clip of is... Children of Men, where to me, Children of Men is what really got me on the kick of long, continuous takes, where, uh, like that great scene with Clive Owen and Julian Moore and those other people are in, the, are in this Jeep. They're getting bombarded by people, you know, throwing shit at them, shooting at them, throwing Molotov cocktails at the car, and the camera the entire time is just in the center of the Jeep, just rotating around. And you can see everybody's reactions. But on top of the reactions, you can see what's going going on and happening outside the windows. And it's just, it's fascinating and just how that was all staged 
complements each other. The, the action, the visuals complemented the drama and the tension. Basically, there's just more to a continuous shot than it just being a continuous shot. It's all about it complementing the story because a movie is only as good as the script. So again, I, I do recommend you checking this out either via uh, this io9 article or Jack Nugent's Now You See It film. Uh, and lastly, for me, from DeadlineHollywood.com, Speedy Gonzalez, eyed as animated feature at Warner Brothers. This is written by Anita Bush, and it says this, Exclusive, the Rat Pack is back. The fastest mouse in all of Mexico may be on its way to the big screen. Speedy Gonzalez, that beloved Looney Tunes mouse who can outrun the fastest of cats and whose Arriba Arriba Andale Andale cry was a Saturday morning staple for kids growing up in the 60s. It is being eyed as an animated feature at Warner Brothers with Mexico's own beloved filmmaker actor Eugenio Derbez voicing the mouse. He says, quote, In Mexico, we grew up watching Speedy Gonzales. He was like a superhero to us, or maybe more like a revolutionary... A revolutionario, like Simon Bolivar or Pancho Villa, which I believe it's Pancho Villa. He watched out for the little people, but with a lot of bravado and a weakness for the ladies. I'm really excited to be bringing this character to the big screen, and besides being Mexican, my full name is Eugenio Derbez Gonzalez, and I have big ears. The casting couldn't be better, end quote. Speedy Gonzalez started out as a character in another cartoon before animators Frizz Freling and Holly Pratt introduced him in an animated short of his own in 55. Then the legendary Mel Blanc voiced the mouse. That short, which also featured Looney Tunes' Sylvester the Cat, ended up winning the Academy Award for Best Short Subject. The in-development project, which is tentatively entitled Speedy, will be produced by Dylan Sellers via River's Edge Films and Derbez and Ben O'Dell via their Three Paths Studios. Hank Nelkin has been hired to script the story, which is described as a heist caper. The project, which apparently was spilled by the tracking board, will be cut into both English and Spanish speaking versions, saying, quote, We see this as an origin story of the great master, like a Robin Hood character who ultimately ends up taking from the rich and giving to the poor, end quote, said Sellers. Quote, In a time when Donald Trump is gaining momentum, the world needs speedy more than ever. End all quotes there. Matt, do you have any comments and questions or concerns over your desire of seeing Speedy Gonzales in his own feature-length animated film? Or do you have any input on the long take stacking up to movies with cuts in them? Uh, not really so much on the former. I think... Um... Is I just I worry that because it's been done well in movies like Birdman and the like, that um, it'll start becoming like <clears throat> something that people expect or something that the studios feel like they have to do, and I just hope it doesn't turn into that. Um, uh, as far as the Speedy Gonzalez thing, I I'm just worried that they'll butcher everything that was lovely about it, um, but at the same time, it's. Um, there's a group of people that feel that it's very racist. There's another group of people, um, and from the, um, from the Hispanic community that, that feel it's not racist. Um, 
so I don't know. Maybe they should just leave it alone so that it doesn't get ruined in everybody's mind. Yeah, you know, it is what it is, I guess. So I'm going to go ahead and just uh, close out my news here. I have a couple other things, but they will definitely hold off till next week. But uh, this is a pretty quick one here from mentalfloss.com by way of Caitlin Schneider. Aladdin director confirms long-held fan theory. You might not remember if it's been a minute since your last viewing, but Disney's Aladdin has a bit of a framing device. The film begins with some golden landscapes and a man on a camel singing Arabian Nights. He eventually slides off his desert steed and breaks the fourth wall. Ah, salam and good evening to you, worthy friend. It's Robin Williams doing a questionable accent, who also, of course, brought the genie to life. Fans have long speculated that the merchant is actually the genie. From their similar clothes, to similar facial hair, to their shared trait of Ford fingers, four fingers, the clues all seemed to point to the shared identity. Uh, let's see here. Now, the theory has been confirmed. In an interview with E! News, co-director Ron Clements said, quote, That was the whole intention originally. We even had that at the end of the movie where he would reveal himself to be the genie, and of course Robin did the voice of the peddler. Just through story changes and some editing, we lost the reveal at the end. So, that's an urban legend that's actually true. End quotes there. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit more to the article, not much, but uh, what do you think there, Tim? Did you did you always suspect that this was the case or it didn't ever really bother me until I got bothered by all the people that were letting it bother them <laughs> like a couple years ago it was just oh man it, it's got to be the genie it's got to and then you have other people posting after you know those people post their pro genie posts oh no yeah no it's not the genie how could it be the genie it's just Oh, it's just Rob Williams playing a different character. Oh, no, it has to be a genie. It fits in with the genie mythos or the Aladdin mythos. It has to be him. Yeah. Um, there you go. Now Whatever. you know. So that is it going to be for my news. That's going to be all for my news, sir. Me too. Oh, yay. Well, that worked out very well then. Okay, so now we come to our premiere, the debut, as it were, of our... Best of the worst. Ooh, can we make up a theme song? Hmm. Let's see here. Oh, maybe we should, should we do like a shaft kind of thing? Which the which one of these movies is the best of the worst? Best of the worst. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Which one of these is just the worst piece of shut your mouth? So what am I saying? <laughs> I don't know. Come up with something. Damn it. <laughs> Uh, well, um... It's not so easy, is it? <laughs> no, but you, I mean, you're, you're the song and dance man. Well, I did a song and dance, so... Okay, okay, then, then do it again. I'll do the, I'll do the high shit. Okay. <clears throat> is this movie the best of the worst? Best of the worst! Is this movie really just the worst piece of... Shut your mouth, is the best! Uh, that works? Let's do it. Okay. Were we doing it over again? Or no, no, no. I think I think with the magic of of post production, we can probably figure something out there. Did I have enough sass? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. So introducing this segment, or I guess bringing the segment to life, is the movie Hard Ticket. 
to Hawaii. Uh, this is actually the second That ticket's film. not the only thing that's hard, if you know what I'm yeah. talking about. <laughs> Wait, what, the, you're talking about the snake? What? <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, so Hard Ticket to Hawaii is actually the second in the Triple B series of films by Andy Sedaris. And, of course, um, the series the the triple b series um was boobs bullets i'm sorry yeah bullets bombs and babes or bullets bombs and boobs depending on how you want to how you want to say that and there were 12 there were 12 of them 12 movies in this series now they are not related to one another and um but uh and i own every single one of them <laughs> And so we started with uh, Hard Ticket to Hawaii, which follows the uh, it, it follows the exploits of the oh, what 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 were they called the the Malachi Trading Company? I dude, I was not paying attention to specifics in this film. <laughs> oh, uh, I was kind yeah, of distracted. I want to say, say it's the Malachi. Um, it's like the Malachi piloting company or something like shipping company, Malachi shipping and the, and the, and their police and everything, because they're actually really a covert, they're like a covert spy agency or whatever. And they go after all these international drug thieves and rings and diamond smugglers and all that kind of stuff. So, um, this movie, though, is truly one of the worst films that could ever be graced with the title of B-movies. Now, y- you have to understand, when I say worst, it, it really is. But it's it, it, for me, this is one of the best of the worst. The title credits, the credits are literally... Eight and a half by eleven pieces of paper that someone printed on and then stuck them on the side of a box because they're supposed to be cargo shipping containers. And as the guys walk their way through, you know, they're zooming in on the <laughs> on the things that have the names of all the people and everything in them. And you are then treated to one of the subplots of the movie right off the bat, having to deal with this snake it's a snake that's been contaminated by cancer rats and will now attack anything that moves because you know as a snake it would not have already done that this snake is like one of the best snakes ever it's a puppet and the thing is is that as it is articulated and it moves around. You can literally see the arm joint. Like, you can see where the elbow meets as this person in there is just, like, wrapping the snake's head around the corner and stuff. <clears throat> and uh, aside from that wonderful bit of acting, we then actually come to the main cast, consisting of Ron Moss, Donna Spear, Hope Marie Carlton, and Cynthia Brimhall. Um, now, the thing is, though, is that the latter three of these cast members... Uh, were notable for their modeling skills prior to becoming actresses, their modeling careers culminating as 
um, Playboy playmates. And you will not be left wondering why they were Playboy playmates at all. At all. At at all. So one of the girls <laughs> is supposedly a new recruit fresh from the WITSEC program. <laughs> Because what better way to disappear into WITSEC than to become a secret agent (laughs) where you interact with bad guys all the time who could then (laughs) tell the people you're hiding from who you are and where you're at, uh, you know. Um, But she's in training, and you know how she's in training because she doesn't have a gun. She has nunchucks tucked into the side. (laughs) you, You think you're making this up. Nobody's making this up. This is just amazing. And so they um, stumble across this uh, diamond conspiracy completely by accident, thanks to uh, Mr. Chang, a white dude, like the whitest white dude you can think of, and his name is Mr. Chang, which is not (laughs) resolved until like the end of the movie. Like after a while, I thought, well, maybe it's like a code name. Nope. It's legit, but there's a reason for it, and that's explained in, like, the last minute and a half of the movie. It's like Kiefer Sutherland as Mr. Chang. (laughs) Picture that. Um, So, Mr. Chang is, Mr. Chang's diamonds have gone missing, and so they have to go after it. And it's up to the the Malachi force to take care of him, these, these super spy people. And, um... I don't know. I think I, I. So they use as their base of cover this restaurant, and this restaurant and bar, and that's how they get like all of their intel and their knowledge because all these people come through the bar, and then of course they can be at the bar, and nobody's supposed to know any better. It's the lubies of hotel bars. <laughs> Yeah, but it's the clientele that's the best. Like, this one chick just shows up out of nowhere, sits down next to this guy, and he just, like, and he's all, like, antsy and looking around in, like, clearly some of the best direction ever known to man. You should look antsy. Well, how do, how do I look when I'm looking antsy? You should be visibly jittering like you fucking got the shakes because you haven't had your fucking fix of heroin. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> I'm like a man who's like 50 years old and balding and wearing a suit, at least from the waist up. I think that'll sure work. The, I'm sure the direction composed of was composed of a bunch of yelling, either <laughs> uh, sexier, bouncier, I, more I, cocaine, more I gotta, cocaine. I, they need more cocaine. I, I will hand it to them, though. Regardless of the lack of professionalism in the production nary a boom mic was to be found in frame i will give them that (laughs) the boom mic never dropped into frame so there's that anyway so then he's sitting there and he's all shaking he's all just like dancing around and bouncing i know you can't see me but you'll just have to visualize me like i'm bouncing around right and then this girl comes in and she sits down next to him and he's like i just absolutely have to have you you don't even understand i i know i sound like i'm just this old director guy and everything who's coming at you but i just i understand you have to understand i really need you to do this and this is what she busts around saying and she says you tried to rape me last night and this is the response verbatim that was last night and this is today (laughs) well i'm convinced you should totally go with this guy 
And that's it. That's like the exchange, except for then this waitress comes up, and the waitress is, of course, you know, scoop-necked and boobs hanging out all over the place. And he just looks at her, and then his eyes are right level with her boobs. And he doesn't stop looking, right? Because, you know, he's a lecher, right? He's, you know, and he just looks at her boobs, and he says, I'd like a pair of coffee, please. And that was, that was pretty decent. That was, and, and then, of course, we have um, one of the many sex scenes in the film probably some of the best sex scenes there's only like could... one or two <laughs> but it, it, it's some... more like she she was kind of like sitting on on the guy's lap awkwardly like laying or like into kneeling him. in front of it yeah. <laughs> 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 like not moving just kneeling and they're like yeah. just caressing each other you know and not really um, like making any facial expressions at all it was a low cocaine day it was a low yes, cocaine yes. day you know they were trying to relax they were going for something a little different right you know softer softer and so they have uh and, and i mean this is literally like these are the sex scenes of your youth, of your child, when when you couldn't, when you were desperately trying to find the Playboy Channel, it was all scrambled, and you were just hoping for a boob. This was, be, you know, this would have been like the holy grail of sex scenes for you at that time, and and so they finish up, and they just look at each other, and she says, "Well, what do you think?" <laughs> and out of nowhere comes one of the greatest lines of cinema. Well, one man's dream is another man's lunch. <laughs> and like, like, what the fuck does that even supposed to be? And she just looks at him with that knowing face and goes, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and that's it. That's the end, end scene. Um, this is uh, one of the most often seen um clips that are shown um from like the you know best of the worst movies is this one scene where there's where they're playing frisbee <laughs> and they're playing frisbee and so they're doing some like and and they're do they they're doing um uh, some reconnaissance right um and they like wow look at that guard this the, the guard he's just playing frisbee uh, they're throwing because you know it's throwing you're not playing frisbee you're throwing um, kind of like in Big Lebowski, you're not bowling, you're rolling, right? So they're taking their frisbee seriously here. And so this guy's got like on the shiniest reflective Ray-Bans ever in the history. You know, this is like complete 1984 and you know it is. And so they're playing, right? Oh, and he's carrying an AK-47 also. Yeah, he's got, yeah, he's got the machine gun, which he then sets down because he's going to play with this chick on the beach. And then they're looking through and they're like, oh, yeah, I know who that is. Guess what his name was? His name was Shades. (laughs) And we have a file on this guy. (laughs) So anyways, they go back. And then, of course, the scene that you will get to if you ever just go to YouTube and type in hard ticket to Hawaii Frisbee. They play uh, Frisbee and it's really bad. It's really bad, Pilgrim. <laughs> I, I just like, like it how I like it how they take one look at him. He's like, "Who's that guy playing frisbee on the beach?" Oh, I don't know, but I don't know if I can trust him. It's like, what? <laughs> what? What makes you think that? Like, is it is it him playing frisbee in very large balloon shorts or pants, or is it because he's carrying a fucking gun, playing frisbee, very serious? Like, my I think my favorite weapon though. In this movie is the rocket launcher, 
because <laughs> the, it's a variable speed rocket launcher. Like sometimes it just causes things to explode like a blow up doll. I mean, just massive explosion. And then, of course, you can just hit somebody from like six feet away with the thing, and it just blows them out the back door. It doesn't exactly explode. (laughs) But then you can use the same thing, not loaded. Like, you can totally tell this thing is empty and shoot down a helicopter. Or how about the really dumb shots in it? Like, that don't make sense. Just because they found a they found an actor who can skateboard while doing a handstand, and the whole bit of the the, the whole bit of the scene, assassin. yeah, the, well, the whole bit of the scene is that the heroes, I guess, are in their jeep driving, and one of them's like, "What is this Looney Tune doing?" or something hokey like that, <laughs> and the guy is doing a handstand on a skateboard, goes right past him, drawing a shit ton of attention to himself. And then he meets up with his other Looney Tune goofy, you know, bad guy friend. And they're like, oh, hey, they're up there, even though they just passed you in your car. It took me doing a handstand on a skateboard for us to get this down on paper that these people pass you. And then they proceed to... He, he gets in there to the bad guy car, and the bad guy car hauls ass and passes the good guy car. And then they turn around... And come back, and like, and it's not like they're like taunting them or anything. They're just really good at at screen time. I still don't understand why the fuck he was holding the the, the blow up doll with the like. Did he think it was a bulletproof blow up doll? Ah, <laughs> uh, I don't. All right. So, at the end of the day, for me, hard ticket to Hawaii is definitely one of the best of the worst it is truly deserving um of its spot in the annals of the best b movies uh according to wikipedia in 2014 paste magazine named the film the best b movie of all time while i don't know that it's truly the best b movie of all time i think it's a worthy contender in anyone's top 10 list um what do you what do you think, Tim? I was entertained by it. But to me what makes the best worst movie, you know, kinda of like The Room, for example, the room works because it was serious filmmaking. He was seriously trying to make a serious movie. And it completely backfired on him. And it's hilarious. This movie, Andy uh, Andy Sedaris, he knew what he was making. But he was a bad film director who knew what he was making. And so I think it kind of takes away from it a little bit. But that's not taking away from the movie being incredibly entertaining. It still it has memorable moments. It has really dumb dialogue. It has the nudity that you would want. But one wouldn't necessarily get pleasure from it unless you like seeing cancer snakes popping out of nowhere and really kind of creeping you out, you know. It's like you go from like this 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 crazy softcore porn moment and then you go to a cancer snake that looks like the inside of a rectum. It's pretty funny. Uh I actually we have some friends come over every Tuesday night and we have kind of just a, you know, hangout night, game night, whatever. Um no kids, just kind of having a nice time whatever. And so we watched this movie the four of us and Jen actually jumped when the snake attacks during at one of the snake attacks. And 
everybody was making fun of her for it because we're like, how the hell did you actually get scared by that? That was pretty. So if you choose to watch this movie and you're into stuff like this, I do recommend on Amazon you can purchase the Andy Sedaris collection. It's a 12-film set. All of his movies on three discs for only six, seven bucks. It's highly worth it. The quality is not bad. So I recommend it. If you're into stuff like this, do pick up a copy of Girls, Guns, and G-Strings. That's the name of this 12-film collection. So I, I recommend it. It's not my favorite, but okay, it but, is definitely but, entertaining. So so would you then... So, so okay, so hard decision, right? Mm-hmm. Do you say yay or nay to it being best of the worst? Not the best, but just, you know, among the best of the worst. What do you say? I say yes. You say yeah? I do say yes. And I mean, I and I was, I had a whole bunch of other, well, I, I said three other people here watching it with me. And we we had a, just an absolute blast watching this movie. I'll, I'll give it a yes also. I, I think it definitely deserves it. All right. Well, there you go, folks. So uh, anyone who is also in a in a mood to make film recommendations, if you've got what you think to be something that's best of the worst, you can send that to us as well. Um, all right. Well, then that takes us out of that and brings us finally, finally to the movies. Are you ready, sir? Oh, uh, as ready as I'm going to be to talk about these three movies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here we go, folks. It's the movies. <laughs> And the movies this week are The Wave, White God, and The Tribe. So, where do you want to start there, Tim? Which one did you like the most? The Tribe. How about White God? <laughs> oh, instead we'll go to the one I like the least. Okay. <laughs> um, Alright, so Hungarian White God, 2014 Hungarian drama film. And it follows the story of a mixed breed dog by the name of Hagen, who is who, who goes with his thirteen. Well, okay, so this, he's his owner or whatever his guardian, whatever you want to call it, is this young girl um, named uh, Lily, and she has to go and live with her dad. Uh, the dad is already not fond. Uh, you know, he's pretty much not in to wanting to have the girl, much less the dog. And a rather convenient excuse comes along shortly after the dog is um, with the fan- with, with the, the father and daughter, who have been estranged from one another. In that there's an ordinance that says you have to pay, not, not necessarily a fine exactly, but like a fee, like a licensing fee to have a mixed breed dog because they're so dangerous or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, social commentary is littered throughout this entire film, you know, think allegorically. And so he doesn't want to have to deal with it. He doesn't want to pay for it. So he forces the daughter, um, to get rid of the dog. They abandon the dog. The dog is then, um, stuck in a world, in a world where you're left all alone and left for dead. Uh, the, the dog 
basically then kind of has a moment where it says, you know what, if you're if you're not with us, you're against us. And I don't mean says, there's no talking dogs, but you, you get this kind of transition. The dog's like, you know what? We here we are, all we want to do is be loved and yet we're we're crapped all over because we're mixed breed or whatever. Somehow we're not good enough. And <clears throat> the dog basically kind of recruits an army of other stray dogs, mixed breed dogs or whatever, and they kind of take over the town. Um, and then, of course, shenanigans ensue. What becomes of the young girl who just wants her dog back uh, and what have you. So here's the thing with this movie. I really thought that this is, was a very, very unique idea. Um, I, there was a movie back in the, in the mid nineties, uh, early to mid nineties called Bingo. Okay. And Bingo was a, just a lighthearted satirical look at the misadventures a dog would have, a very, very loyal dog who gets separated from his, from his, uh, owners or really just the boy who loves him. And works his way across the country to, you know, get back to the boy that loves him. And this is kind of like the black version of this movie. Okay, the dark, gritty, realistic. Because this is definitely a drama. This is not a funny movie. Um, and... So I liked that they took this kind of an idea of something that is usually considered lighthearted and warm and and feel good and devotional and turned it on its head to make various statements about the way groups are treated um, and why you should be careful of pushing groups of people or things or pets or what have you too far. But that's where it stops, because the movie, in its attempt to be allegorical, goes way too far into whimsy and fancy, and you don't really believe... Your suspension of disbelief is stuttered and and is not able to be held um, when they attempt to get too heavy-handed and take things too seriously. And it's not that they should have necessarily, you know, made it funny or f- turned it farcical. Um, but I think that you, you, with something like this, you just can't be as heavy-handed because then the characterizations and the things that you're trying to show, a la, say, Animal Farm, the, the, the book Animal Farm, um, it just, it starts to border on the ridiculous instead of, the thought-provoking. So because it does that more than it should, I ended up with 2.5 on this one. It's not really, it's not a bad movie, but despite its really great idea and some of the really cool shots that it does have, um, it, I just don't think it worked as well as it could have. So 2.5 out of five. What do you got there, Tim? I agree with you. Uh, This is a 2.5 out of 5 movie for me as well. I thought this was a very interesting original concept, a fresh concept. I thought the dog and human performances were excellent. 
the biggest flaw of the film, I think, is the direction and the overall vision, whether it be the director's vision or the vision of the writers or writer. I don't really know who all had a hand in writing the movie, if it was more than one person or not. But the, the movie just dissolves once the one hour mark hits. It just dissolves into ridiculousness extreme it goes the extreme and it really didn't need to minor spoiler alert when the dog gets separated from its owner he ends up coming across this guy who who trains the dog to become a fighting dog a a dog who would fight other pups i guess and so the dog becomes very vicious and aggravated and mean and that segment scenario i guess makes something click in the dog's mind that this is not right you know it turns the dog's vengeful against all those who wrong them and and that's when the movie starts to fall apart in the way once the revenge story kind of kicks in and you get all that the imagery of the hundreds of dogs rioting the streets if the movie was smaller in scope Not smaller in story, but smaller in scope, I think it would have fared well. The movie deserved to be smaller, not as big and broad. I really liked the characterizations. I thought, uh, you know, just again, the story was unique, it was interesting, and the performance that they got out of that dog was excellent. Absolutely excellent. I just wanted to care more about what the hell was going on. Understand more. I wanted to be on the little girl and the dog's side. And I wasn't. In fact, I was just kind of waiting for the movie to be over. So I give White God, again, 2.5 out of 5 as well. Right on, right on. All right, where do you want to go, sir? Wave or tribe? About the wave. The Wave. Okay, this is a 2015 Norwegian catastrophe film. Um, and it was actually their Norway's official submission for the uh, Best Foreign Language Film for the Academy Awards this past year. Um, now, I, I note that it was submission because it was not nominated. And basically, it's about a small Norwegian village that um, is threatened by seismic trouble and they and their warning sounds for like when the fjords overflow or if there's any kind of wave action or bad activity they have a siren system that lets them know hey you know the problem is the siren system is only good for 10 minute for a 10 minute heads up and very much along the lines of Every disaster film ever. One guy knows it's coming, tries to warn people. Uh, the you know the people in charge, the big shots are like, no, there's nothing there. Da, 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 da. Uh, but of course it comes, and then now everybody's got to try and figure out what's happening and blah blah blah. All right, so um, this movie is very, very, very tropey. But not in a bad way, in a very good way, because it's fi- it's very refreshing to see the things that we think are like I was talking about last week with the, you know, the global concern and everything in terms of movies and stuff. It's really cool to see another country's take on a 
on a specific genre, right, the disaster film, and see how they play it out. And quite frankly, I thought this was a much better acted version. Like, if you think of San Andreas, right, or if you think of the Poseidon Adventure remake, um, which I didn't think was too bad, but still didn't do all that great. So you have all these disaster movies and stuff, Dante's Peak, Volcano, uh, Deep Impact, and the ensemble aspect of the cast... Um, was more kind of Independence Day, so it was kind of like different, kind of kind of following different people in terms of how they conglomerate. But I thought the acting, for the most part, really, really good. Um, the special effects were also really decent. And so everything leading up to the actual impending disaster and parts of the actual disaster itself, really, really good. However... Um, where the film fell down for me was all post-Tidal Wave. Um, it just seemed to slip into everything we've already seen a hundred million times and not really bringing anything new to the table. That being said, the, the setup, really, really good. And I would say it's probably really only the back third of the movie that suffers from this problem, but it's not something that you're like, oh, again. You just kind of like... You're going like, yes, 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 oh, so close. Um, so I give this one 3.5 out of 5. Good acting, good special effects, nice setup. Just runs into the standard disaster trope wall and doesn't bring anything new by the finale. So, uh, But you would not go amiss seeing this film. 3.5 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? The movie had an excellent build-up until, I thought, 10 minutes before the avalanche happens. That's about... 40, 45 minutes into the movie. Normally, stuff like that doesn't bother me because that means that they're just spending time setting up the story. You have all that time to develop some kind of connection or bond with these characters. And you do. And you definitely do. I felt for these characters. I loved the family dynamic. And it was just, it was nice seeing all that stuff because it wasn't too much like it didn't feel like they were that that is what they were actively trying to do you know trying to force you to like these people because you know something bad is about to happen and i said that that stuff normally doesn't bother me but what does bother me is when you're force-fed too much science or too much setup of the impending disaster itself Again, I thought the actual disaster itself happened 10 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes late into the film. I was just kind of getting a little fed up with all the information and like the characterization of, oh, that cliff is going to fall. Oh, that cliff is going to, oh, don't, and, you know, the guy keeps warning these people that this cliff is going to fall. And, you know, you, the audience member, already knows what's going to happen. You know this will happen. So why do we have to keep seeing this guy struggle to make these people know that this will happen? It would have been a better payoff if it added something tense, but ultimately it doesn't. It's just more science and more kind of backstory of the impending avalanche. And so when the avalanche happens, it's beautiful. How they did it was frightening. It was scary. I didn't get to watch this at the movie theater, but if I did, it would have been something profounding especially when you see the avalanche coming towards the people on the hillside you know when they're trying to get in their cars they get out of their cars and run away and whatnot it it's horrible it's i couldn't imagine being in something like that but i guarantee you 
that must be in a way kind of how it looks like. I mean, it's it's got to be like that with all the science and the thought that was put into the avalanche actually happening or that it could happen. It's, it's got to be somewhat real, right? Maybe a little bit. But the last act of the movie, it's the last act of the movie that made me wanting something more or different, especially after the excellent disaster footage. In seeing him walk through, the main character, seeing him walk through the post-wave wreckage itself on his way to find his wife and son, I just wanted something more out of that last act. It's stuff that we've seen before. There's a lot of little tropes throughout the first half of the movie, but it's this last act when the tropes really come into play. I mean, the, the whole act is kind of a trope. But, you know, like what Matt said, it's still a good movie and worth seeing. The effects are really good. The performances are really good. And it's it's a disaster movie that we honestly haven't seen in a while, especially when you compare it to something like San Andreas. It's not as big. It's not as bombast. And, and the substance is what trumps the style, not vice versa. So I, too, give The Wave 3.5 out of 5. It just needed a little bit more originality to it. Very cool. All right. Well, then that brings us to The Tribe, 2014 Ukrainian drama, Ukrainian drama film. Um, and this star, this is basically a film. Now, everybody's probably already heard of, everyone who listened to this has probably already heard of Hardcore Henry, right? And the gimmick behind Hardcore Henry is that it's going to be 100% um, point of view. So POV. Now, this film also does something very, very different. And I don't want to say gimmicky because it will sound gimmicky, but it was an artistic choice made for the sake of immersion. Okay? Not to be something like, ooh, you've never seen this before. The film has no dialogue. None. Now, it's designed because it is designed that way in part to kind of give you a, an idea of how effective a silent movie can be but also because the film itself revolves around the community of the deaf this actually takes place um, at a boarding school for the deaf so there is tons of signing happening but even without you knowing signing it doesn't matter because it's Hungarian I'm sorry Ukrainian sign not you know, American sign. So even if you didn't know sign language, it wouldn't help. Um, but it's because if you were deaf, you wouldn't be able to hear it either. You would only have what your eyes are giving you to clue you in on what's going on. Now, that's not to say that it's there's no sound. There's sound uh, everywhere. So when someone gets shoved or punched or smacked, or a sound is made like a cry out or you know or scuffle, or you're gonna hear all of that. Um, you're just there's just no dialogue. So with that being said, we go into this film. It's about a young boy. He's very shy, quiet, reserved. He goes to um, a boarding school for the deaf, and he just by the simple act of having lunch um gets sucked into a um he, he basically gets kind of sucked into the underworld the underbelly of the school system and the hierarchy of the kids there um and it's not exactly a pretty hierarchy as it were um 
he gets drawn in by these who he you know these boys who he thinks are cool kids but it turns out that these guys are actually not so very nice and he is and there's there's sex there's prostitution there's drugs there's um all of these things going on and he actually kind of falls for the wrong girl um as a direct result of the things that he's being exposed to and that kind of changes the entire dynamic of the film once that forbidden love occurs now i won't say anything more than that because i don't want to spoil it for you but this movie is vivid okay and i mean that in terms of sex in terms of nudity in terms of brutality uh but it's not done i i kind of think it's kind of what a serbian film could have been uh if they hadn't purposely tried to cross lines this film definitely shows you uh a side of the world that doesn't necessarily exist in the context that is presented but still exists and makes you kind of question a what would you do if you were in that posi- in that position and b um what must it be like for those actual hierarchies where they do happen so um the only problem that i have is where it, and it's one big issue is that there are times, and it's very, very obvious, where they are intentionally pushing the envelope, and I think that they are too heavy-handed. There are some aspects of the violence that are just too heavy-handed. It's when it stops being um, a part of the movie and starts being more shock value. Um, and it's not quite as bad in the sex department, but I think that they do kind of overplay the hand a bit there because these are supposed to be, you know, teenagers and stuff, you know, and and they're not supposed to be 18, obviously, but, you know, and, and so I think that there's some envelope pushing that is done for shock factor. And the thing is, is that when you've already got something so immersive and you've already got something that's um, that intelligent and something that you're uh, really going, wow, what a neat idea. Um, I think you've already achieved that and I don't think you need to push it for the sake of pushing it. And it feels that way. Um, but at the end of the day, really like this movie four out of five stars, cannot recommend it enough. Um, and that's all I have to say about that. In the immortal words of Forrest Gump, bring us home there, Tim, believe it or not, I did not like this movie. I, I, I know this isn't a movie that you go into to be entertained by, um, you know, it's like watching a, a Lars von Trier movie. You know, you don't go into watching a melancholia to be entertained. You go into it knowing it's a depressing story. But you can, you, I mean, but you can find entertainment elsewhere. Like how how they shot the movie, the writing of the movie, even the story itself, or even find things intriguing uh, more so maybe than being entertained. There's different, especially with, in my opinion, Lars von Trier movies, there's a different level of entertainment that I can find. Even if the movies are ridiculously either morbid or, or, or sad and depressing. The Tribe, though, is intriguing. I think the performances are outstanding. These are all deaf actors. The director, though, 
is not deaf. His name is Miroslav, I'm gonna butcher this, Slaboshpitsky, S-L-A-B-O-S-H-P-I-T-S-K-Y. He is not deaf. In fact, he doesn't even know sign language. So he had to have an interpreter there with him to keep an eye on if the actors were staying on book or not. And I think with that being the case, the movie loses something in the translation. It feels very staged. After somebody gets finished with like getting the crap beat out of them or somebody beating the crap out of that person, the action just stops. The, the drive stops. The emotion stops. And then the person gets up as if nothing happened and they just walk. And the camera follows them. There's only 34 shots in the entire movie So there's not a lot of cutting. It's a lot of walking. There's way too much walking. And I think in the translation, especially, the movie loses something without... uh, I think a lot of the characterizations and the emotions that are obviously flowing through the characters and between characters gets lost in the translation with the audience because it really needs a cut. You really need the build-up to the next scene. Instead of having the shot start with somebody walking from down the block, or it feels like they're walking from down the block, to where they're just going to end up going inside of a building, and then walking up some stairs, and then walking down a hall, and then maybe there's a scene between them, or maybe there's a fight. There's just a lot of stuff like that, and it just ruins the flow of the movie. You don't need to see people walk that much. To me, it really kind of negates the story and the passion itself through these characters. And that brings me to something that I've been reading that kind of annoys me with some of the critics of this film. Everybody is saying that this movie has soul, this movie has heart. But where is all that? Yeah, there's good performances. Yes, the story is interesting. But where is that heart? Where is that soul? Because often in the movie, you really don't know what's happening. Like, we all know what the basic story is. We all know what's going on. We, you know, guy falls for girl. Girl is not exactly who the guy, or, 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 or is not exactly the type of girl who the guy would like. The girl gets mixed up with the wrong people. The guy gets mixed up with the wrong people. Girl, you know, and then, and then problems ensue. And then there's the establishment of the good guys and the bad guys. But even that is a little bit skewed as well because the good guy kind of becomes one of the bad guys. And, the, the levels are, are vague to this movie, and the prog- character and story progression is vague in this movie. Because even if you are deaf, parts of it would be difficult to follow. Because there are many scenes where you don't even see the hand movements, you don't see any of the sign language, you don't see any of the facial reactions or anything that's going on. Like, there's a shot, there's a very long shot of outside of... It's got to be the school, but these two offices in the school. And you're just looking through the windows of people having conversations. And it must have been like a four or five minute shot. But you could get absolutely nothing out of that scene. And nothing really led into it. And so there's a lot of that in the film. I personally think the movie would have been better if it was not two hours and six minutes long. And it had more than 34 shots to it. It's an interesting movie if you like art house movies that are produced for the sake of being an art house flick. I think with the director again not being deaf or not understanding sign language himself, that kind of created a loss in the translation between 
the film and the heart and the soul, as well as the characters and the heart and the soul that that makes them. And that is what I really wanted to understand. Why this character is doing this. Why this character is doing that. And like what Matt said, this movie is vivid. You have long long scenes of girls changing, which you really don't need to see. You have a really awkward sex scene that goes on way too long than it needed to be. There is another scene in shots that, you know, if you see the movie, you will understand why I'm saying that runs too long. So there's a lot of that stuff. And if the movie was an hour and a half or an hour and 40 even, and those long shots and long takes were taken out or trimmed down a bit, the movie would have made a little bit more sense to me. But I am going to sit firmly on two out of five. Very good. All right. Well, then that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies, uh, we've got a triple shot of theater movies for you. We have Eye in the Sky coming at you, Hardcore Henry, and My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. Uh, those are the movies for next week, and that does bring us to the spiel, does it not? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. As for them, you can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries for Solace. Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at slscast.com. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can also follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can even climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Karen Allen, I get to say this... When one film is enormously successful, you get so identified with that film until you're in another film that is equally successful or more successful. Well, it's pretty difficult to make a film that's going to be more successful than Raiders of the Lost Ark. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>